Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Tom Francis, and I've been part of the upstate New York poetry and spoken word community for over 25 years. In that time, I have performed and are hosted many events and open mics and recorded a lot of them. In my weekly Talking with Poets segment, I sit down with some of the great writers in our area to talk about a particular poem of theirs, and then we learn more about them and their art. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I am bringing you a holiday special of the Talking with Poets series, highlighting five very interesting creators. We kick things off with poet, artist, educator, and slam host Elizabeth Gordon, who talks about writing process, editing her work to fit the audience, and the community she is building with a new event series in Troy. Then we chat with Avery Stemple about walking in nature, getting inspiration for his writing, and starting up Collar City Mushrooms, an urban mushroom farm in Lansingburg. Later on, I sit down with retired teacher and open mic host Nancy Klepsch to discuss how poetry can be a tool for social change and how she has incorporated that into her life. After that, Hudson Valley Writers Guild VP Mary Panza lets us know what inspires her poetry, her first time taking the stage at the legendary QE2 open mics hosted by Tom Nattel in the late 80s, and how motherhood has shaped her writing. And finally, I catch up with the great Dee Collin, and we talk about her poem, Up Ahead We'll See, her Haitian heritage, and how she represents her cultural identity in her art, whether it's on paper, on canvas, or on stage. Elizabeth Gordon is a poet, artist, educator, and now an organizer and host of a monthly Poetry Slam series at Cafe Euphoria in Troy. In September 2011, she came across an event listed on the Albany Poets website that looked interesting that was taking place at Valentine's, a gritty rock and roll club in Albany, and she decided to check it out. What she didn't know was that open mic and Poetry Slam would change her writing forever. At that open mic, she read poems composed from the text of the back of an aspirin bottle and Murphy's oil soap. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I was at the UAG open mic and the host said, don't be shy, come up, you could read the back of an aspirin bottle if you can make it work. So I took that as a challenge. So here goes the back of an aspirin bottle with most of it blacked out, you know, about blackout poetry. Oh man, I'm using up like 10 seconds just putting my fucking glasses on. Okay. <laughs> Low dose aspirin bottle blackout. One, facts. Minor delayed action will keep children and teenagers alert and bleeding. Pregnant professionals exceed water, exceed Skokie, Illinois. <laughs> Two, this is the same bottle. Active aches and pains recommended by your doctor will provide symptoms needing children. Not this pox, not this syndrome, but serious liver, serious use. Three. Drug therapy recommended by its immediate, drug therapy recommended because of its immediate, complete, 
poison, a full glass, not to exceed each safety-coded adult. And you know what, if you try this, cleaning products are much more optimistic. So here goes a cleaning product. Murphy's Oil Soap. Free love with bookcases. Clean, natural excess. No reach required. No residue dulling years. just being blown away by that format and you know something said uh try this it's an opportunity to stimulate your writing you know and just have fun and be be a part of this um you know something in me really wanted to get on stage um yep. and uh, you know i think i i was a competitive person who hadn't had enough opportunities for competition like in sports i think if i if we'd had girls sports in high school, I would have got it out of my system, you know, but I had right. this late, <laughs> latent need to compete on a, you know, in a team format, you know, with really clear winners, losers and points. I like the point thing and holding yes. up. The, I, think, I think I was asked to judge. And that was part of the reason I, I know I was asked to judge. And that was part of the reason I liked it so much because I really had to pay attention to, to every poet and think about it more. Whereas if I'd just been in the audience, I might've, you know, uh, gone to the bathroom or gotten a drink or stepped outside, but, uh, but I was like, I have to sit here and watch. I was up front. Two weeks after that first time out to the slam, Elizabeth came back to Valentine's to compete. And this time she won. I remember liking yep. it. And I wrote a poem. I wrote a poem for slam. This poem never would have emerged if I was not thinking stage, multicultural contact, context, young people in a bar, you know, people out having fun. Yeah, that I totally wrote that. And it was such a thrill because people were like a couple lines into it. They were, they were, uh, you know, screaming and it was like a, a concert. And I was like, it was so thrilling, you know, the app to amazing. be affirmed because as a poet, you're writing, you know, alone mostly. And now and then you publish something in some magazine that then, you know, goes defunct three years later, you know, um, but just, just to have real people in the room and they're looking at you and they're responding to some of your words and then they're not to others. And it's just like a very good connection to the audience. And that connection kept her coming back. After that first win, Elizabeth was hooked and she went on to change the way she wrote and edited her poems, crafting her words in a completely different way. I didn't miss one for like five years, you know? I know. <laughs> those it... years. I, I just loved it so much. I wouldn't miss it. It felt like really important for me to meet this challenge you know, and try to write poems that people connected with. So, yeah. And that's how you saw so it? Fun. Yeah. And you saw it as a challenge? Oh, very much so, but not in, not, in a, not in a hard way, but in a, well, I'm going to try to write a Villanelle. I'm going to try to write mm -hmm. a Sestina. You know, I'm going to try to write some haiku. I'm going to try to write a slam poem. It's, it seemed like a set form that I really liked. And it gave me permission to rhyme, you know, which modern poets, we don't always, you know, it's hard to make it work. You know, but if you right. listen to rap and you're listening to songs and, and Algo, PV, they were rhyming. So I'm like, it's, I'm allowed to rhyme. It's not corny, you know? And um, that was really fun and challenging, you know, the, the, the speed of it. I don't know where it came from. You know, I really don't know 
once I started writing those poems, I got really excited and I revised them a lot. It wasn't like it came out instantly, but I had a sense of what I was trying to create. And I just kept revising um, and then getting feedback from the audience. It's like, oh, wow, they didn't need all that. You know, and I was like, but what they didn't need was not the best part of the poem. It was like, it taught you, it, it really is a, a training in revision, in cutting the fluff, cutting what's unnecessary and sharpening every metaphor. Because a really good metaphor, you'll get a reward for that. And mm -hmm. my tendency is, my tendency is to overwrite or overthink a metaphor and to reach for the most bizarre metaphor that nobody else would ever think of. And sometimes it's just got to be practical. It's just got to communicate quickly what falling in love is like. She then learned how important timing was in the writing of the poem. It was just part of the format, you know, like if you're going to write a, a sonnet, you're going to have 14 lines and you're not like, oh God, I hate this 14 lines. You know, you're just going to make it work. So the three minutes I found was a great stimulus for revision because I would always come in four minutes, three and a half minutes, five minutes, you know, and mm -hmm. then you're like, but I, but I want the poem to work. I want to be able to perform it. And I think it always got better as I revised it down. And then you go to a national event and there's the two minute format and the one minute format. And then it, 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 and then when you perform it, it is stressful. To me, that was eight, 70% of the stress of performing was, am I going to get a time penalty? All these years later, Elizabeth has now started a new Poetry Slam series in Troy, taking place on the first Friday of every month. Well, Cafe Euphoria, we want to get people in there. <laughs> um, okay. And I'm on the board and I, I had a memory and an idea. I had a memory of like going to Slam for Your Die, um, Nitty Gritty Slam, Slam for Your Die in way up in New Hampshire. It was like a three hour drive and I went pretty regularly and I went to a couple slams in New York City pretty regularly and they would be packed. Like in New York City, it was a weekly slam and it would be packed every yeah. week. So I'm like, slam is a way to get people into the venue. Um, so that's the main thing I was thinking, either open mic or we're doing open mic and slam. I also had, I was telling the people who were there, we're creating our own slam. We're making up our own rules. You know, how do you want to do it? How many rounds? You know, and that's a great thing about slam is you have this basic format, but you can decide no time limit or you can decide we're giving an extra point if your poem uses the word magnificent somewhere in it, you know, you can just throw in these different rules. Oh, that's great. Um, With a couple of events under her belt, can we expect to see a team being formed to compete against other slams in the region? Elle has talked about wanting to uh, uh, reinvigorate uh, the team, um, the uh, Cap City Slam, the most recent Albany team. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think I have the time or the energy for that. And, or the skills, you know, I'm not sure how to do, how to make it happen. Um, uh, you know, we've only had two slams and, and it's, you know, uh, it's a very informal, it's open mic and a, and a, a two round slam. Um, so to actually think about a team that would travel, you know, that's a lot. And there's the fundraising aspect, which you didn't mention when you were mentioning, you know, the, the promotion aspect, the fundraising aspect, that's big. Right now, I'm looking at getting people into Cafe Euphoria, having poetry happen, you know, and I know Slam was good for me, and I know it's good for a lot of people just to, it's the last soapbox, you know, you can get up there, and if you're really bothered by the use of plastic, single-use plastic, you can write a poem about it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, it'll, and people will like it, people, and people will hear it, you'll get a message across. 
Elizabeth Gordon took first place at many slams in the area and was on the first team to ever represent Albany at the National Poetry Slam in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2012. She has gone on to perform all over the country wowing crowds with her wordplay and imagery. In her free time when she's not writing and planning poetry events, she is painting as well as teaching online courses at Northampton Community College. Slam Euphoric takes place on the first Friday of every month at Cafe Euphoria at 225 River Street in downtown Troy. Avery Stemple has been coming out to local poetry readings and open mics since the late 90s. He's been featured at many regional literary events since. Last December, Avery graced the stage at the Linda, WAMC's performing arts studio in Albany, for the Year in Review show. There he read, as some have called it, his signature mushroom poem. This one is Dao de Mogu. If you can watch, if you can listen, If you are open to learn, the mushroom can teach. Sit, meditate, prepare, spread, myceliate, fruit furiously when conditions are right, know when to let go. Have patience, create balance, be adaptable, the way of the mushroom. I asked Avery where the inspiration for that poem came from. I grew up on a sawmill and always going to the woods with my dad and my mom. And, you know, my mom, before my brother was born, I was, you know, an only child until I was five. And my mom would pack, up, pack us lunches and my dad would cut trees and we would just wander through the Catskill Mountains. And, you know, I would love the trees and obviously love spending time with my mom. But I do, you know, just remember finding like, there's just tons of mushrooms, you know, so I was always fascinated with, with mushrooms. So, you know, mushrooms have always been percolating in, in my uh, subconscious. In my early 20s, late teens, I dabbled with a variety of psychedelics, uh, and psilocybin was always one of my, my favorites. I liked the downloads that, that, that I would get from that medicine. And you know, I, I wrote a variety of short pieces then based on mushrooms and envisioned a whole like kind of photography book uh, with involving mushrooms that was sort of like a, a story that had the mushrooms as, you know, conscious beings establishing outposts and kind of, you know, getting mowed over by lawnmowers and you know so is it i i've definitely approached the fungal kingdom from a variety of directions in my creative work and that dao de mogu uh piece was crafted out of creating this mushroom farm and really getting even deeper into the soil with with mushrooms Avery goes on to explain how nature was his safe space growing up and how those experiences shaped his writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely draw 
energy and peace from being in nature. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think having some of my formative years, basically just being in the forest and my, as I grew into my teens, like that was my safe space. Like I would leave my house when I was feeling troubled and just wander through the trees of my, you know, um, my family's property, walk up to the, to the sawmill, you know, kind of really hands-on touching the, the wood and, and being able to get my frustrations by breaking, you know, out by breaking, you know, br dead branches and, 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 enjoying the, the vistas and things of the, the mountains or behind my grandparents' house. So, you know, I, you could just about see the light coming from Albany from the top of the mountain and, and almost see the fireworks. Like you can kind of like see the light from the fireworks. So it was, a, it was a really beautiful spot growing up. And, you know, I was basically given a lot of freedom uh, to wander as long as I came back you know, at a reasonable time. And, you know, this is before I really became a writer, you know, I would just breathe, sit and be. And then I turned that, you know, breathing, sitting and being into uh, pieces that reflected my inner being and, you know, ways that I wanted to share with others that experience of peace that I had watching a cloud pass by or listening to the breeze rustle the, the leaves or the burble of a creek. And, you know, it was a way for me to put onto paper and into a more concrete reality what I was experiencing. When the pandemic hit and his job as manager of MPAC came to an end, Avery shifted his focus to a dream that he shared with his girlfriend, Amy, and together they opened a mushroom farm in Lansingburg. And, you know, with the pandemic furloughing me for uh, having managed the Performing Arts Center at RPI, you know, I decided to, to do this complete pivot because I uh, um, my girlfriend, Amy, she had been growing mushrooms for about 10 years or so. And one of the things that got us together was our mutual appreciation of fungi. And our phones were, you know, both filled with pictures of mushrooms, uh, you know, in situ in the, in the woods. And, you know, we were always um, saying offhandedly, oh, wouldn't it be nice to, to start a mushroom farm someday? I asked Avery why he chose the city of Troy for the farm. Yeah, I mean, I I I love Troy. I, I having worked at RPI for twelve years, uh, you know, I got my master's degree at Sage uh, Colleges, my two master's degrees that I'm definitely using right now. And I, when my wife and I, you know, decided to go our separate ways, Troy was one of the spaces that you know, cities that I really looked at to to make a home and. You know, one, I, I, I did, I appreciated where I was at RPI, but two, I, I love the community there. I mean, there are so many people doing really creative things and, and making connections. And now that I am further embedded into like the, the business end of creating those communities, I can see how amazing it is that 
different people want to work together. And, you know, I'm sure that this happens in other cities and other places as well, but Troy is, is, is really known for people creating partnerships and, you know, supporting each other. Uh, Oliver at Primo Botanica, you know, gets our mushrooms and turns them into chocolates. And we, we work together on a, we made a, a cacao uh, vision quest, non-psychedelic chocolate drink. Uh, you, you know, a lot of the restaurants in Troy are getting our mushrooms. And when we go to those restaurants now as just patrons, because we, you know, there were places that we were buying from already and, 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 you know, enjoying now it's, you know, they're like, Oh my God, it's mushroom people, you know? And, and it's, it's just, it's, it's such a great warm feeling. And I hope that us being up there in Lansingburg is going to be another like cornerstone for others to try to create more creative businesses and places for people to gather. There are a few trickles coming from downtown that are trying to establish themselves in, in other spots of Troy, but it seems so hard and the downtown is supported and showcased so vibrantly and so frequently by everybody in as like, that's what Troy is when there is so much more to Troy. The fact that there is in the city environs so many parks and places to engage with wilderness really speaks to me. And with community building in mind, Collar City Mushrooms is now home to a monthly literary open mic. Yeah, I mean that, you know, it's we we are a yes and place. If someone comes to us with an idea, you know, we we want to see how we can make it happen because we we are an incubator. And when Nancy and Dan, who had been running the second Sunday poetry uh, open mic out of the art center, had to look for a new location because the art center lost some of their funding and couldn't be open on Sundays regularly anymore. They reached out to us first as a, you know, knowing that I was a fan of poetry and had a location where we, we could potentially host um, a, a reading. And, you know, I was like, absolutely, let's, let's do it. Let's make it happen. You can learn more about Avery Stemple and all the great things that are happening at Collar City Mushrooms at their website, collarcitymushrooms.com. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM, Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM, Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM, Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM, Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes to you from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm Tom Francis, and today's edition of the show is the Talking with Poets Holiday Special, highlighting five poets and writers that I have had the pleasure of chatting with. 
If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Let's continue the show. Next up is Nancy Klepsch, who takes a few minutes to talk about the late Bernadette Mayer, who passed away last month, and her lasting impact on the writing community here in the Northeast. We then catch up with Hudson Valley Writers Guild Vice President Mary Panza, who has been one of the driving forces of poetry and spoken word in the area since the late 80s. We talk about going to poetry open mics for the first time, what kept her coming back for all these years, and how motherhood has changed it all. And closing out our 2022 holiday special, we hear from poet and artist Dee Collin as she discusses how a devastating earthquake in Haiti affected her and how the island itself is an inspiration for her art. Nancy Klepsch is a local poet and teacher. Her poems have been published in Oberon, 13th Moon, Poetry Magazine, Salvage, 200 Proof, and Chronogram, among others, and online at Barzak and Albany Poets. God Must Be a Boogeyman is her first book of poetry and is available from her website, nancyklepsch.com. She's been reading at featured readings or open mics in the Albany area for the past 20-plus years. Klepsch is also the co-host with Dan Wilcox of the second Sunday at 2 open mic for poetry and prose in Troy, New York. On April 12, 2015, Nancy read her poem, A Queer Horse, at the Up the River Issue 3 launch reading at McGeary's in Albany, New York. So Langston Hughes, uh, A Negro Speaks of Rivers, and uh, Frost, The Road Less Traveled, really permeate and are in my DNA. And I always thought, what would it be like if I got to hear what the queer little horse said uh, that the narrator mentioned. So that's where this comes from, and it's called A Queer Horse. I am a queer horse, a brave hard mount in a hard brave world. My long lean legs have carried me to Mecca, Jerusalem, and Mumbai. I have galloped in the waters of the Mediterranean drank her deep blue ocean, felt her waves upon my lips, and now I'm that queer horse, curly-cued and off-balance. I forget, I forgot, I have forgotten how to run unsaddled through a fresh field. But when I think about that poem, um, I think about the Negro Speaks of Rivers. You know, I spent such a long time teaching Langston Hughes and different poets. And um, sometimes if I'm really lucky, some of their better ideas come into my head and I get to make something of my own. And when I mm -hmm. think about this poem, I think about the lines of you know, um, carried me to Mecca, Jerusalem, and Mumbai. I've galloped in the waters, drank, drank her deep blue ocean. For those of us who write in terms of what I call identity politics, there becomes this, at least it was for me, um, maybe that wouldn't be 
it would be different for a different uh, minority group. But for me, I got to a point where I couldn't write those identity politics and autobiographical poems anymore because they weren't feeling authentic. And I have to make myself laugh. But one of the things that had happened is I grew up and got happy and I wasn't as angry anymore. And um, A Queer Horse was an attempt to write a poem about being gay, but to have a different perspective on it. I asked what happens when you're not angry about those things anymore. Nancy says that going to a poetry workshop led by the late Bernadette Mayer helped. What I did, and it's very relevant because she just died, um, but what I did is I wound up luckily stumbling upon Bernadette Mayer's um, workshops, and it had a profound experience um, for me. Um, because Bernadette taught me how to do something I didn't know how to do. She taught me how to make a poem where there's a blank landscape that you can see yourself in. Um, it's almost like in a song. You know, all of us have songs that we'll sing or listen to and they resonate with us and we feel like that happened to us and we feel like the author knows our feelings and they're they're speaking them and uh, one of the things that she shared with with us uh, it, it wasn't explicit it was implied but you have to kind of leave a lot of holes um the other thing that that she taught us um which would a, a lot of the poets in the class would, would push back on her um it was kind of funny for me because it was exactly what i did for a living um but she didn't like meanings. And she didn't think that poetry should have meaning. She, she felt like poets focused way too much on meaning. She didn't like being labeled, but she certainly was a language poet. So fooling around with language and play, and, and plus she was just brilliant. I mean, she knew everybody. She knew every living poet and those who had, you know, contemporaries who had died. So she could reference meetings with them and talking with them. Poet, publisher, and artist Bernadette Mayer passed away on November 22nd at the age of 77. She was a driving force in the small press world of New York City and ran St. Mark's Poetry Project for many years. I asked Nancy about Bernadette's lasting impact. Her door was always open when you walked in. She was always there and welcome, and there was a generosity to us. Um, when we were in the workshop, it felt like we were important, like we were important poets and what we did was important. And um, she created a space where everything was okay. Um, she would give us writing. Basically what she would do is give us writing prompts. And now I'm going through um, my, my emails, trying to write them down because I never captured them. But one of them, some of them were as simple as mushrooms, Girl Scout cookies, or our first one was uh, write a poem as if there's a tornado in your body. And she would just give us these assignments. And, you know, for me personally, I, I had actually at the time never written a poem about mushrooms. And I came up with this like fun for me, I don't know if she liked it, um, but fun for me um, poem that was an emulation of Howl 
um, but goofing on all the hipsters that come to our farmer's market and giving them different mushroom names and descriptions and, and stuff like that. So I had a hoot with it. And uh, again, just that her door was always open and there was a level of generosity in her spirit. Nancy goes on to explain how poetry is a tool for social justice and tells a story about Tom Nattel in the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. I, I think poetry is an amazing vehicle for social change. Um, I think it's definitely one of its functions. It doesn't have to be all its functions. For me, the most profound social justice thing was when I came to my beloved dear friend, Tom Natal, and I told him my best friend was dying of AIDS. And Tom was an early innovator in the AIDS department in the health, uh, in the New York State Health Department. And Tom coached me. And, and we created these like bread and bup, a puppet type um, instruments. I had no idea what we were doing, but I was fascinated by it because I was, I was so angry and I was so grieving so much. And um, Tom gave me a mechanism where I could take my art and put it with social justice. And we did this scattered site poetry reading. We, we would hand out dental dams, we would hand out condoms people would spit at us sometimes people would yell at us they were they were not you know you know this was a time when there was no cure um and and it was just shortly after the whole grid thing so they were calling it like the gay related infectious disease and thinking about quarantining gay people um for me personally to have my best friend get that and then to find out um, and, and I think ethically, I can't imagine this would have happened today, but when the AZT didn't work anymore, the only way that you could get the cocktail was to be in an experimental program. And my friend got the placebo. So my friend began to die in front of me. So we did this thing and it really, it kept me alive and it sustained me because it helped me, it healed me. Um, it helped me to make sense of my world. It certainly helped me to communicate my anger and protest and frustration. Um, and it made me feel bold and brave and courageous. And Tom gave me that gift. Tom taught me all of that. I had no idea that you could take the arts and make social change out of it. And um, he taught me a valuable gift that I've used throughout my life. Nancy Kleps recently won second prize in the Hudson Valley Writers Guild annual writing contest with her poem, My Mother Was Effortlessly Cool, which can be read at hvwg.org. According to her own bio, Mary Panza has been a mainstay on the Albany poetry scene since 1988. She's been witness to countless open mics, naked poets, fires, drunks, chapbooks, career changes, organizations, both coming and going, festivals, and great poetry and spoken word. Mary hosted two long-running open mics, five years at Borders in the late 90s, 
and Poets Speak Loud at Lark Tavern and then McGeary's for 15 years until the pandemic hit in 2020. Last December, Mary read her poem, We're Barefoot People, at the first Year in Review spoken word event at the Linda. She asked me how to walk in high heels. We don't, I told her. We are barefoot people. The summer I was 13 is a blur to me now. I had mono and can remember going to sleep in early July, waking up for some orange juice and going back to sleep till the middle of August. I can remember for be being tired for weeks, but wanting to go outside and show off my 30 pound weight loss to the kids on my block. Hindsight being 2020, I should have stayed on the couch with my mother close by. We should have watched what Erica Kane was up to on that particular day. We should have talked about what was really happening around us. Mom and I should have had an exit strategy that didn't involve Valium or Carlo Rossi. We should have done a lot of things we didn't do. He was sick of me being sick. He thought it was a ploy to get out of having a job. The man who called, my, called himself my father was a bastard. He comes to me in the form of saltines and milk. It was a Depression-era dessert. My daughter loves saltines. She tells me they're pretty good with milk. I spit between my index and middle finger. It's a gesture taught to me by a book. He may be blind to her in hell, but he still manages to get a dig in at me. He was a bastard. My daughter is outside in the summer. She swims and plays and has as much fun as a 13-year-old thinks is cool. She plays tennis. She is tall and smart and proud. I pray she never has to fall asleep to escape, only to wake up and still be tired. We don't wear high heels. We are barefoot people. I had mono when I was 13. And it kind of, during COVID, it just kind of reminded me of that, like, that summer where I couldn't go anywhere and I don't remember much of it. You know, all these memories kept coming back of, like, uh, I, I remember waking up like in July to get a glass of orange juice and just going back to bed. And during the day, I, I would lay on the couch and my mother would sit in her chair and we'd watch soap operas. And I would have to like get into my bed before my father got home because he was convinced I was faking it. So I didn't have to get a summer job. No, I was 13 and I had already been working since I was 10 or 11 babysitting and I I mean I had mono you know it was it was clear I went to the doctor I was on antibiotics he wasn't a good person and he didn't want me and it just all of that kind of because I came so much later in their lives um he just didn't want me he didn't want to start over he didn't want a family he certainly didn't want a girl. I don't know that my life would have been easier had I been born a boy. I don't think so because my brother had it pretty tough with him. I just, I think he was done. And that's kind of what it's about. And when during the summers, we would, you know, because I was on 4th Street in South Troy between Madison and the canal, 
we just walk around barefoot. Like we were all, you know, the neighbor, the neighbors and all the kids my age, we just, we'd run around barefoot. And, you know, that summer I, I really couldn't be barefoot. I asked Mary when she started telling stories and putting pen to paper. When I was little, Nana Panza lived with us for a short amount of time. We'd play hide and seek and Nana wouldn't look for me. And it was usually, you know, she was smarter than anyone gave her credit for. And it was usually during the edge of night, which was her soap opera. So when I was little, I used to draw stick people soap operas. To this day, I still watch Young and the Restless. I mean, I, I grew up on, on stories, if you will. And so I would draw these little stick figures in these little scenarios, nothing dirty. I was a kid, but then I could change the story. And it was really just between me and myself. And I would draw these pictures and then I would put them in a certain order. And then if it was a different day and it was a different story, I'd, I'd move the order. So yeah, um, I didn't really start writing poetry till um, I was much older. After writing poetry for a while, Mary decided to share her work at a local open mic. But back in 1988, there was only one game in town, the legendary QE2 open mic hosted by Tom Nattel. I got up to the mic and there was feedback. And Tom Nattel adjusted the mic and I just said, look, if you don't want me up here, you can say so. And everyone started laughing. And when I heard when I heard them laugh, I'm like, oh, these are, they get it. These are my people. This was at the QE2 and it was uh, summer of 1988. I mean, I can remember everybody distinctly. Then afterwards I got applause and I, I loved that. And it, it just made me feel valued and that somebody heard what I was saying. Although I was, it was drivel and nonsense, people heard it. I guess to me at that time, it wasn't drivel and nonsense. Why did you keep coming back? I just liked how, I, this is going to sound crazy, me saying this about the QE2, but I liked the way it smelled. It was raw and it was dirty and there was no pretense behind it. And you didn't really have to behave and you could say what you want. And, you know, I just, I felt like I found a home. And I was young and had to prove myself. I mean, there were people at those open mics getting master's degree and doctor doctrines and, you know, way more educated than I ever planned on being. A theme that runs through most of Mary's poetry is empowerment, standing up for yourself as a woman and a mother. So I asked Mary if she considers herself a feminist poet. And I was always under the impression that feminism was, you had the right, you had the freedom to choose and you could choose whatever. And I would never tell another woman, you're doing it wrong. You need to choose for yourself. And that's what feminism should be, should be like you, you have the breathing room. Not that I wanted to like run out and have kids cause that, you know, wasn't in my plan till it happened. But it was just, I don't believe in putting somebody else down for their life choices. Right. And that's what I felt like it was. And that there wasn't, that that wasn't who I, I, I just don't, I've never been much 
I've never been one to really judge how another person lives their life and makes them happy. As long as you're not hurting anybody, I really don't care. She was well on her way to living the rest of her life as a party girl when, at age 37, the party really began and she became a mother. How did that affect her writing? I don't talk about, like, sex or men as much. Protective over Julia and her privacy. And, you know, that's why I haven't really even written a lot about my blog because right now I'm so engrossed in her life you know she's 16 I'm trying to we're trying to get ready for college and stuff like that so most of the stories I have to tell involve her and I haven't told them because she's still young and she's got the right to that privacy and for me to tell a story about my experience with her interferes with her privacy so uh, the original question is, how has my writing changed? I think I'm a little more protective and I'm, I'm telling my backstory more because for years I didn't. It just wasn't anybody's business and I wasn't ready to do it. After 150 years of therapy, I can talk about these things and not have a nervous breakdown. Dee Collin is a Haitian-American multidisciplinary artist who works in poetry, theater, and visual arts. She is a New York State Writers Institute fellow as well as the author of Dreaming in Creole and Said the Swing to the Hoop. Her work has appeared in Trolley, Ink and Nebula, Jaded Ibis Press, and Porter Gulch Review. She is the 2022 Excellence in Arts and Letters Award recipient for UAlbany's Alumni Association. On April 18th, 2018, Dee Collin was featured at the Albany Poets Presents reading, and she read her poem, Up Ahead, We'll See. Peter not where. Peter not comprend pour qui. Peter not where. Up ahead we'll see, up ahead we'll understand why, up ahead we'll see, up ahead we'll understand why. Our eyes rise to the skies and like the dry months, no replies rain down except the tears from our eyes. Tonight we see the stars and they are our only company. And for those of us who cannot see from beneath debris, hear the men, children, women scream, Amre, get pitié, have mercy. And we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait for our hungry stomachs to survive another day of waiting for our lungs to breathe the air again, though stench with the decay of rotting bodies. Our eyes long to see the living pulled out from the rubble and walking among us again. We don't sleep. We wait for the earth to shake again and again and again and again. So many times we all rest outside under a star-studded sky. It has become our blanket. It has become our roof. It has become our truth of newfound possibility as we walk the streets of Kafu and Leogan and Port-au-Prince confused. The palace has become a center for aid. 
We wait to see what real changes this earthquake has made will make. The Catedral Palais Nacional are gone, but we remain strong. Our businesses, our hospitals, our schools, our homes have crumbled, but we still dig through the rubble. We still dig. We are still here, and we wait for God. We wait for the world. We are still here and we are still strong. At nights we fill the air with song. The earth cannot shake our hope. Our hope lives inside us and we will survive this despite all questions. Why? Our answer is, Peter Von Auer, Peter Von Auer, Peter Von Auer, Peter Von Auer, up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand why up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand. At night, we fill the air with song. Our hope, our hope remains unshaken. At night, we fill the air with song. Our hope, our hope is still alive. That's why we sing. Peter Von Auer. Peter von a compoint pookie, Peter von a Peter von a compoint pookie, up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand why, up ahead we'll see. I can't clap. <laughs> we'll understand. At night, we fill the air with song. Our hope, our hope remains unshaken. At night, we fill the air with song. Our hope, our hope is still alive. That's why we sing. Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Compton Pookie, Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Compton Pookie. Up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand why. Up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand. Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Compton Pookie, Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Peter von Auer, Compton Pookie. Up ahead we'll see. Up ahead we'll understand why. Up ahead we'll understand why. Thank you. Growing up here, I I went to school and it was very American. <laughs> and I went home and it was it was uh, it was very Haitian at home. Um, and I spoke Creole at home and I was immersed in my Haitian culture at home. Um, and with extended family. And I've been going to Haiti uh, throughout my life. My parents were, were really big on me knowing where they came from. Uh, so I would understand where I came from. I have a, a deep love for Haiti. And uh, in 2010, when the earthquake happened, I know the world was watching the news uh, because it was such a massive earthquake. And you know, watching the news to see what would happen. But for me, I was I was watching the news because we couldn't get in touch with people. And I I was watching like nonstop news, thinking that maybe I'll see a cousin or someone. And then I had to stop watching the news. I remember I watched an episode of uh, I think it was Larry King, 
and they were showing uh, like these big construction uh, trucks uh, that you would like put like dirt or like other construction materials in, like piling things up in. Uh, and there were bodies in those trucks that they were transporting to like mass graves. And so that was a lot for me to see on TV, just the action of that happening. And I just thought, wow, like there's a, I, I know I'm not the only Haitian person who's watching the news, just trying to like get an understanding of what's happening and also um, not being able to get in touch with family. And they were showing this kind of like removal of the bodies, you know, and so I, I stopped watching the news and I wrote a poem. She continues. Up Ahead We'll See was my way of uh, holding on to hope and also uh, a way to keep uh, the issue of the earthquake relevant even after the news stopped covering the after effects of it and the impact it had on so many people. And it was also my way to, you know, really pay homage to a very resilient people. Dee goes on to explain how her culture, heritage, and identity as a Haitian American takes shape in her writing, acting, and visual art. I think my identity as like my, my Haitian culture has shown up in all of my art forms. <laughs> uh, it's definitely shown up in poetry, you know, because my first book is Dreamy in Creole. I mean, the whole book is, you know, is, is, commit, is, is dedicated to me being Haitian um, and my culture and heritage and Haitian history. Um, so poetry, definitely. Um, and then I have played a Haitian woman on stage, you know, in theater. Uh, had that one woman show called Simon. Uh, Simon was a character that I wrote poems. It was a poetic play, it was poems, but it made the one woman show play. Um, and she was a survivor of the earthquake. Um, and then recently I was in a play called Sides with Creative Action Unlimited. And uh, my character was Nadej Victor. I had fun. Um, doing a Haitian accent um, because I've, I've listened to Haitian accents my entire life. Although Creole was my first language, you know, I, because I grew up here, I, I didn't really have uh, the accent that like say my father has. Um, so it was cool to play Nadej uh, in the play. So poetry, theater, and then in my art, what I will say about my art is that it's not necessarily specifically on Haitian culture, but I love bright colors. <laughs> like I, I will paint. I will paint in such bright colors all the time, and I know that has to do with the bright colors that I see in the art. I've seen in the art um, that Haitians make. You know, uh, when you're there, it's very colorful, and the art is very vibrant. And yeah, I I love a bright green <laughs> or a blue. You know, like yeah, I just yeah. love bright colors. And that comes from the influence of Haitian art. D. Collin believes in Nina Simone's words that, quote, an artist's duty is to reflect the times. And she often says that, quote, if the art didn't move you, then I didn't do my job. You can find out more about her work and all of her current and upcoming projects at her website, dcollin.com.
And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed listening to a few of my conversations with local poets and writers on this special episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Tom Francis, and I will have more of these chats every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning in the new year. If you want to hear more of these interviews, just go to mediasanctuary.org and search Talking. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform.